Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So last week on Easter, we started a series, and I didn't really frame it in, that, in this way, um, but this is actually going to be week number two of a series that we are in that we are calling Catch You on the Flip Side. You may have noticed these little slips of paper on here, and I'll go ahead and mention these. There's one of these on every spot because this week and next week we're going to talk about uh, heaven and hell. Uh, today, hell, so spoiler alert, it's going to be hot and heavy today. Get that, what I did there? But then after that, uh, the last two weeks of the series, we're going to take your questions that you might have about the subject of death and the afterlife. That's what this series is about, catch you on the flip side, the afterlife. And so whatever you, there are a lot of questions. That's why we're covering this series. That's how we're doing this, because there are a lot of questions, a lot of unknowns, a lot of uh, miscommunications, misunderstandings about this topic. And so whatever question you have about this topic, we would love to discuss that the final two weeks. So it's going to be kind of a free-for-all. If you have a question, write it on this piece of paper. If you have multiple ones, there's a plain black, you know, backside as well. Drop that in the, uh, the offering basket back there or wherever, um, and we will wrestle with these in the coming weeks. But today, we're going to continue, again, week two of this series, and here, here's the reason why we're covering this topic. Uh, the important theme behind this series is what you believe about death will affect your actions in life. What you believe about death will affect your actions in life. And so we're covering this topic about death and the afterlife. If you think that there's no life after this one, it will affect how you live this life. If you think that this life and existence is meaningless, it will affect how you live your life. If you think that there is a life yet to come after this one, it will affect in some way, many many different ways, but it will affect the decisions that you make, the actions that you take, the words that you speak, all those types of things. What you believe about death will affect your actions in life. And so we're going to cut, we're covering this um, idea here this week, and we're going to get, we're going to get the, the negative week out of the way today, okay? Today we're going to talk about hell. Please don't get up and leave, okay? It's not like that. But we're going to talk about it because actually, interestingly, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven in his public ministry. It's interesting to think that. So really, the top topic Jesus talked about was money. That's even scarier for me to preach about than hell, honestly. Uh, He talked about money a lot. And then the second most common thing he talked about, preached about, was hell. And so, and we'll talk about why today. But hell, maybe you have this idea, it's a scary place. Maybe you don't think it exists. Maybe you think you're living through hell on earth right now, and this is as close as you'll get to hell. Um, maybe, maybe not. Some people have that view. Uh, there, there are things about hell that might be confusing, maybe even angering or frustrating to certain people, certain aspects about hell. And so what I'm going to try to do today uh, in, in a few minutes, and I say a few, I'm going to try to contain myself uh, we're gonna t- I'm going to try to explain the truth about hell. The truth about hell. There are, are, again, misunderstandings, misconceptions about this 
uh, touchy topic, maybe a personal topic, maybe a difficult, rough sort of topic, but we're going to try to plow through five truths this morning about the doctrine of hell. And there is going to be quite a bit of scripture today, so if you're taking notes, have fun, it work, you know, stretch your hand out real quick, just take a second, massage that thing, and, and we'll be, it'll be good. Uh, so let's start with this one. Here's the, maybe the, a good jumping off point, the first truth about hell. I want to talk about its true purpose. What is the true purpose of hell? Because I think most of us have this idea that it's where sinners go to be punished forever and ever and ever, okay? Actually, the true purpose of hell is to punish rebels against God, in a, broadly speaking. And that actually is broad now, but originally the intent, the true purpose, was very narrow in its original intent. Here's what Jesus says. He's, we referenced this story last week in Matthew 25, where at the, Jesus is giving us sort of this view into the future. At the end of time, everyone on earth is judged. We mentioned that last week. And Jesus says that God will separate some on his right and some on his left. The ones on the right, yay, get to go to heaven, paradise. That's next week's sermon. So come back next week for maybe a more positive type of uh, sermon. But the ones on the left, he says, depart from me, I never knew you, and they are banished to hell. But here's how he describes the true purpose of hell. Matthew 25, 41, he says, The king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. So Jesus is telling us the original purpose of hell was to punish Satan for his rebellion against God. Now, so Satan, whether you know this or not or believe it or not, is a created being. So there are not two cosmic supernatural forces in the universe. There's only one of those, and it's God. Satan is created as an angel. He's also known as Lucifer, right? That's his angelic sort of name. He's a creation of God, just like you and I are. And just like you and I do, he rebelled against God. Now, his seems more epic, right? Because he literally recruits a third of the angels in heaven in the distant past and tried to lead an actual rebellion against God. He says, I will be like God. I will ascend to God's throne. I'm going to take his place. I deserve all this power, glory, majesty, and praise that this guy is sitting on his rear end getting all the time. I deserve that didn't go so well for him. He didn't get very far in his rebellion, and so he's banished from the glory of heaven. The question is where he went, which we'll talk about in a minute. So he's leading this rebellion, and at that moment, in that, after that event, then hell was basically then at that moment created in some way, in some form by God to punish Satan, and the, now they were, we call them demons, they really are angels, I guess, uh, for their rebellion against God. This is a promised sort of punishment that Satan has in front of him. And when you get to the very end of Scripture, Revelation 20, John has a vision of all these events in the future yet to come. And one of these events is that moment of punishment for Satan. Here's what John sees, Revelation 20, verse 10. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. I won't get to that today, okay? Uh, there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan, after his rebellion, he's already been sentenced to eternity in hell. And he will one day be punished for eternity in hell. But here's the issue. Here's where we come in, in the middle of the already and the not yet, is we're in the middle of that time frame. Because even though Satan has, is, he's fighting a losing battle, and I think he knows this, 
However, his rebellion already failed, and he knows that his fate is sealed, but he's still fighting the same rebellion today, and he's still recruiting people for his side today. So uh, he's still recruiting rebels and still declaring war on God and all who worship him, all who follow him. And here's what Peter says about that, 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I will say, it's, this strikes me as funny that Peter uses this imagery of a lion because typically it's the female lions that go out and hunt, right? So I'm wondering if Peter's like jabbing Satan a little bit here, calling him a girl, you know, like it's the females that go and hunt and devour, not the males, right? I don't think he's doing that, but I just think, I think that way sometimes, and that was just funny to me, you know. Maybe he is, I don't know. But Satan does, he uses lies, deception, and temptation to gain recruits, to lure humans, other creations of God, away from the love of God, from true knowledge of God from a relationship with God. He's still in the recruiting business. Now, he's not going to come to our kids' middle school and high school, you know, like the armed services do to recruit. He just, he comes in your life all the time with lies, deception, temptation to try to get us to rebel against God, to join his side. And if he can't succeed in that mission, then what he, what Jesus describes him as, he says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So if he can't recruit you, he will try to crush you. He has two goals, two aims, and only two aims. His, his whole existence is rebellion against God. That's the main thing. To do that, he either tries to recruit more people on his team to rebel and then fall with him, or he tries to crush anyone in his way. If you're going to stand between me and my goal, I'm going to try to destroy you. Steal, kill, destroy. That's how Jesus describes him. So the initial, the true purpose of hell is it's created. It's intended for rebellious Satan, for his, the demons that rebel against God with him. Unfortunately, it also awaits all of the rebels against God. All who live in sin and die in their sin must face this same judgment, this same punishment. And that's what we're going to talk about, again, a little bit more on in just a few minutes. So that's the first, the first truth, I think, to lay some groundwork so that we don't... It's not all doom and gloom, and we'll, we'll kind of end on a high note here, too. But Satan, or God is not looking... He's not looking out to just zap people, you know, like this lightning bolt thing about God, like zoom. That's not the intention at all. This whole idea of this part of the afterlife was intended for a very select audience that unfortunately, through sin, has grown into a much larger one. But it's important to see the true purpose here of hell. The other four, what I'm going to do is read a parable, a story that Jesus tells uh, in Luke 16. And we're going to look at the, the other four other truths about hell from this parable, this story that Jesus tells. So it, it's 12 verses, so it'll take me a minute to get through it. But it's a, it's a great story. And again, we're going to look at four other truths here about hell from this story. So Luke 16, starting at verse number 19. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. 
the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Very interesting story, and sometimes the story makes hell even more confusing than it already is. So we're going to try to get through four other truths here about hell from this story. So the second truth that we see about hell is that it is real pain. So verse 24 says, The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. So in this story, the word torment is used to describe hell twice, and this word anguish is used twice as well. This man in this story experienced real, literal, physical pain. He felt the effects of this place that he was in. Now, maybe you've heard some people, and they have a different view of hell. Maybe you have heard people say, yeah, big party. Oh, hell's going to be so much fun. It's going to be, you know, I'm going to be with my buds, and we're going to be just having a good old time. And I would say, you're crazy. That's an insane thing to say. But the, and this idea, though, of hell being not a big deal or being a party, or it's going to be fine, you know, it's not a new idea, okay? Your bro didn't come up with that himself, okay? Uh, it actually dates back hundreds of years. So there's an epic poem by John Milton in England, uh, and it's called Paradise Lost. Maybe you've heard of that or read that in school, possibly. Uh, it was written in the 1660s. And this is basically an epic poem. It's a work of fiction. It's not true, right? It's not, he doesn't know what happened. But he basically, through this epic poem, uh, writes the fall of Satan, that event, and then the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And it goes on forever and ever. It's really hard to read. And, but I recommend trying it. it it's interesting. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because near the very beginning of this poem, when Satan is first banished from heaven, there's a line here that illustrates the same idea. Oh, hell's a party, right? Because what Satan says when he's banished, he says this, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Now, from this quote, again, it's a work of fiction. It's a poetic device, but I think it reveals two other quick things that are incorrect about some views of hell. The first thing is, hell is not Satan's kingdom, okay? In fact, we already read from 1 Peter, he says he goes about like a roaring lion. Where? Well, not in hell, here on earth, okay? Scripture also tells us, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, so hell is not Satan's kingdom. You know actually what is this fallen earth, Paul says that Satan is the god of this world, little g, but he's the ruler, and even he goes on in another scripture, he's the prince of the power of the air. So this idea of Satan having a throne in hell and he loves ruling over, 
That is not accurate. Hell is just as much a punishment, if not more, for Satan as it is for any sinner apart from Christ. And he knows this. This is not his little kingdom he's lorded over. It's his punishment. It's like telling someone at the end of your life you're going to be in prison forever and ever and ever and ever. You can't escape. He knows that's his future. He's not like, yeah, this is great, hell. It's like, yeah, you know, it's really hot. He's like, no, no, this is awful. This is terrible. I don't want to go there. This is not, this is, that's not his kingdom. It's his punishment. And the reason he doesn't want to go there, the reason anyone wouldn't want to go there, is because hell is actually not fun. And we see this here. It's painful. It's also described in Scripture as utter darkness. Jesus describes it on several occasions as it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like you, you want to escape and you can't deal with the agony and even the anger, resentment, bitterness, you know, all this, that, and you're trapped there. You're trapped. And it says it's a, really, the, the, here's the real pain of hell. It's not even so much the physical pain that is alluded to many times in many different ways, but it's the complete absence of God's presence. That's what makes hell, hell. It is the only place in the universe, even if hell is in this universe, I don't know where it is. I don't think, if we dig down to the earth's core, I don't think we're going to find people burning in a lake, okay? Uh, so I think, though, that, that that's, that's the true pain of hell, is it is a place where God's presence is not. There, and God cannot go there, will not go there. He's created it for those who have rebelled against him. So that, that's the true pain of hell, is the absence of of God's presence, but it is indeed painful. It is not a place that anyone, even Satan himself, does not want to go there. The, the third thing that we see here, the second from the story, the truth about hell, is it is final. It is final. In Mark 9, Jesus gives this illustration. He says, hey, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because he said, it'd be better for you to go into hell with one hand and one eye, or go into heaven with one hand and one eye, than to go into hell with two hands and two eyes. Now, he is using a bit of hyperbole here. I think he, he's not actually saying to cut your limbs off, necessarily. I don't think, that's not a literal phrase. But he's using this exaggerated language because here's what he, he says about hell, that it's unquenchable fire, he says the worm never dies. Like even the most minuscule creature in that place, whatever it is, lives in agony forever. And that's why it's interesting that the scripture also calls hell the second death because you die once and then you're dying forever and ever without dying in hell. So Jesus says, hey, you, you need to go to any extreme that you can to avoid going to this place. And again, it's a bit exaggerated here, but he's serious about the finality of hell. That's maybe one of the harsher realities, is it is final and it is forever. We see that here in this story in Luke. So Luke 16, 26, uh, Abraham talking to the rich man says, besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. The rich man says, hey, could you just send Lazarus on? It's, what's interesting is even this man in hell is still treating Lazarus as a servant. Hey, could you bring Lazarus over here? I'm thirsty. I need just a, just a drop of water on my tongue will help. Thanks. He still hasn't quite gotten it yet. That's how, that's how thick this guy is. Even burning in hell, he thinks he can boss around some other dude up in heaven, right? And Abraham says, sorry, there, there's, like, there's no going back and forth. There's not like a bridge. There's a huge chasm, and there's nothing between. There's no way to cross between. 
And that quickly, I'll just mention in case that's a question you were going to write down, this gets to the doctrine of purgatory. Okay, let me mention two things quickly. One, there is no positive affirmation about that teaching in Scripture anywhere. You can't, you can't find it there. The second thing is that this story, that one verse alone shows you that doctrine not, to not be true. And again, yes, it is a parable Jesus tells. He's not necessarily teaching theology here, but he is teaching a point about the afterlife. Wherever you go on one side or the other, there's no crossing over. And if, if you're in heaven, why would you want to cross over to hell? There's a book that I read, and I'm going to quote it here in a, in a few minutes, uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And it's not about divorce. The divorce is the separation between heaven and hell. And it's this idea this guy has a dream. And in the dream, again, it's a, a work of fiction. There is some crossover in here for uh, a purpose for the book. But what, what we even find here is that even the people that can travel even for a while from hell to heaven the ground is like like hard it's uh jagged they can't even walk on it they can't even they can't accept it because they're not worthy to be there sort of one of the ideas here but even that is just it's just not there just not true there's no back and forth with hell there's no parole for good behavior there's no early release uh it's it's an eternal sentence it is final and here on this earth we do have we suffer short-term from the effects of sin now, okay? So sickness, suffering, pain, those are short-term human physical effects of the fall of man, of sin. Um, and e even the consequences of our actions, that, that's like an immediate sort of thing, like, oh, that wasn't good, I shouldn't do that. Oh, that was painful, I should avoid that. Oh, that hurt them, so I should maybe not treat them that way. That's short-term effects of sin, but for those that never turn from their sin, never repent of their sin, the suffering is forever and ever and ever. The question is, is that fair? That seems pretty harsh of God to do that, which leads to the fourth truth about hell, and that is it is just. It is just what, maybe you're asking. No, what I mean by that, it's fair. Ju it's justice for anyone who goes to hell. It is just that they are there. Verse 25 of this same uh, passage. Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. Is Jesus saying that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven? That's almost what it sounds like he's saying here, but that's not what he's saying. Here, here's what he's saying. And in my studying this week, I discovered something I had never thought of before. But this is the, Jesus tells maybe two dozen parables, something like that. This is the only parable Jesus tells that has an actual person's name in the story. Lazarus, this, this one. Now, it's not the same Lazarus that Jesus rose from the dead, just the same name. And I'll tell you why it's important in a second. But like every other one, there was a man who did this. There was a farmer who did this. There was a traveler who went there. It's just very, you know, broad. This has a specific name for one character, but not the other. And that's intentional. So the name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my help. So what Jesus is saying in this story, one man, yeah, he's the poor beggar. It doesn't matter. He could have been the rich man who's like, we could flip their names and it would still be the same thing. Lazarus, the name, this character in the story is, has said, God is my help. The other man who just happens to be rich, you can be a poor person and go to hell. Okay, I'm just going to say it. 
So, but he is rich, but he doesn't have a name. So this char- one character says, God is my help. The other character is saying, I am my own help. That's the main moral of the story. One man has put his faith in God to earn, to not earn, but to receive salvation. The other person has put the faith in themselves, and they receive the, the reward, the punishment for how they've lived their life. That's the main part of the story. That's where the English thing, the translation thing, really, when we can get through that, makes the story so much easier to really understand. It's not a rich-poor thing. It's not a, you know, if you make a certain amount, if, on, if you're a certain part in the tax bracket, you're going to hell, baby. It doesn't mean that. There are righteous rich, and there are sinful rich people. There are righteous poor people, and there are sinful poor people. You know this in your life. You know that there are some rich people who are the most generous, nice people you've ever met, and there are some rich people who are snobs and selfish and greedy. You know there are some poor people who are overly generous with all. And you're like, well, you need to kind of slow down because you need that, you know, and you, you worry about it. And then there are some poor people who they are snobs and they are selfish and they are, we just know this to be true. So it's not the condition of their bank account, it's the condition of their heart that Jesus is talking about. Lazarus says, God is my help. He receives salvation and enters paradise. The rich man, the nameless man, he is his own help and he's receiving his just punishment. So that, that's how we see it's just. And we see it here even when you look at what the rich man said in hell, never once did he complain about injustice. He's not saying, Abraham, this is not fair, bro. Or he's not looking around, there's got to be a mistake here. I was a good person. He never says that at all. He understood, all, all he wanted was a little bit of relief. He just wanted a a drop of water on his tongue. That's all he wanted was some relief. And then later he wants something else that we'll talk about in a minute. But he knows, I think it's implied in the story, he knows he's getting what he deserved. He knows he's there because he deserves to be there. It's a just punishment. But here's here's what that means for us quickly. I think maybe one of the scariest things about hell is a true definition of hell, if you will. Hell is God giving us what we want. And I'll reference this quote. I mentioned, I mentioned this story earlier. C.S. Lewis from The Great Divorce. He says this in, the, in, this in this book. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. So the idea that God sends anyone to hell is an incorrect view. God sends no one to hell. In fact, they go to hell over his dead body, quite literally, right, if you know what I'm saying. God doesn't say, yeah, sinner, boom, you know, that's not what he does. He's not, he's not, woo, he's like, they have like a helimeter up in heaven. How many do we have, angels? And they got a guy keeping, that's not, not what's going on, okay? That's not what's going on. And uh, Pastor Tim Keller says in a similar way, he says this, if you continue to insist on getting away from God, you might just succeed. And that's a scary thing. If we live our life continually running away from God, we'll eventually reach that destination. We won't like it when we get there, right? But we're running from God in this life. In the next life, we reach that destination that we're always running toward in the end. And you go back to even Satan's fall. How did he fall? Why did he rebel? He said, I will be like God. 
in, a, in the same way in this story, the rich man, in his, with his selfishness, with his self-reliance, is saying, I will be like God. And that's what sin is. When we run from God, when we reject God, when people rebel against God through sin, they are saying the same thing. I will be like God. What I want matters more than what God says. What I desire is more than what God wants. My, my thoughts, my wisdom, my direction, my whatever is more important to me. I am my own God when I rebel and sin against God. That's why a sinner, apart from faith in Christ, meets the same punishment that Satan met because it's the same rebellion. It looks different. It's not as obvious. My sin is not as obvious uh, apart from Christ as maybe Satan, like, you know, literally going up to the throne of God and saying, I'm going to take you down. But it is the same thing. That's why the grace of Jesus is necessary for sin, because it is a just punishment. Now, a lot of bad news so far, right? Like, not, not a super upper kind of message so far. Lots of death, punishment, pain, destruction, judgment. Right, I get that. But there is good news about hell, believe it or not. There's good news. Here's the good news about hell, the fifth truth about hell that we even see here in the story. It's this. It is preventable. Hell is preventable. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God would that none perish, but that all come to repentance. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hell is preventable. So again, like I referenced, when anyone goes to hell, God's not laughing all their way down. It, doesn't, it, it breaks his heart that his creation, whom he wants to enjoy relationship with, whom he wants to share his glory with, whom he wants them to love him, right? That they say no to that offer, that they, that they reject and rebel against him. It breaks his heart. So that's why it says, God would that none perish. It's not a desire of his to see how many, he, how full he can get hell. Well, we got to do an expansion project down on the, on the basement floor, guys, because it's getting really full. That's not what God's about. It, it's, it's really one of the few, sin is the thing that tears God apart. So he made a way out. He did. He made a way out. So the discussion of hell actually, in a weird way, I know I'm twisted, guys, I know I'm weird, but in, a, in an odd way, this discussion about hell shows the depth of God's love. So here's a statement. I want you to put it in your heart, put it in your mind, think about it um, this week, and we'll talk about why in a second. Here's how this discussion of hell shows God's love. Because to keep us from burning, God had to bleed. That's God's love. To keep us from burning, God had to bleed. To keep us from utter destruction, God had to die. He had to send his son to this earth to suffer, to be murdered for you and for me. So that hell does not have to be our destination. Our rebellion, right? The ransom was paid for our rebellion. That's the whole point of God's love, seen even through this discussion about hell. So, um, let me just mention a couple things about that. To, to, uh, we're going to put this together, frame it this way. All sin must be punished, right? God is holy. He is without sin. So, he, 
we'll, we even, we'll talk about it in James this Wednesday. There are a few things God can't do. One of them is sin. It's against his nature. He is holy. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is blameless. He cannot sin. And therefore, he must punish all sin. Okay? But all sin that must be punished has already been punished on the cross. That's what the cross is about. It, Jesus was punished on the cross. The scripture says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's why on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally, in that moment, it's not really written on the page, but in that moment, God is looking away from his son because he is sin. He has taken upon himself, the scripture says, the sins of the world. For us to not burn, God had to bleed. He had to die. And what's interesting about hell is that it never ends. We already said that, right? It never ends. You can never get out. Why? Because me simply suffering for a time doesn't repay the debt I owe to God for my sin. It doesn't make my rebellion okay. Well, now we're even. I suffered for 20,000 years in hell. Now I'm fine. No, it never ends because I can't ever repay the debt of sin that I owe to God. Yet in one six-hour period, Jesus paid all of the sin for every human who has ever lived in that moment. That paid the penalty that an eternity in hell will never pay. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, that wasn't no thing. I'm God. I'm good, you know. But the death of Jesus is... It shows us God's love for us, even despite this idea of the existence of hell. For us not to burn, God had to bleed. So, here's the question. Has your sin already been punished through Jesus? If it has, there's good news and there's a, there's a purpose to that. Or, let me get to the other part though, have you, are you like the rich man? Have you said, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm on my own. I'm fine. Life is good. We all struggle. We all deal with stuff. Nobody's perfect, Stephen. That's not the problem. That's not the point. Well, that is the problem. Nobody's perfect. The, the issue is what do we do with that knowledge of our imperfection? What do we do with that issue, the knowledge of our sin? It's already been punished through Jesus if we place our faith in him, taking our place on our cross for our sin, right? That's the good news. If we haven't accepted that substitutionary sacrifice, then our, we will be judged for our own sin and we can never repay it. That's the bad news. So let me go back to both of these there. If you put your faith in Jesus, then this conversation about hell should motivate us to share the gospel with those people around us. It should light a fire under us, so to speak, to tell people, and if, again, this is not a thing to scare people with. Now, it might scare them if they believe in the reality of hell. Yeah, well, I don't know if I like that. That's a good thing, but here's, it's, not, it's not a scare tactic. Hell, again, in its deepest level, shows God's love. He doesn't want you to go there. He must punish sin, but he already did through his son Jesus. And if you simply put your faith in him, right, that's all it is. It's an act of faith that pays the penalty for our sin against God and keeps us from God's judgment. Even Jesus says, God loved the world. He gave his son. Whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, hell, but have eternal life, heaven. That's good news. But for those that have not put their faith in Jesus, 
today can actually be a great day because it can be a day where we stop running, we stop resisting, we stop rebelling, we stop being like the rich man, I'm fine. We can be like Lazarus and say, no, my help comes from God. God, I need your help. I, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy applied to my heart and my life for my sin that I must pay for, but Jesus already did. We can accept God's grace and forgiveness. We can live in his love and not under his judgment. What an opportunity we have to share that message as we live out this amazing trade-off that God offers us through his son, Jesus.